to be found, to be forgiven, to be restored, to be given hope, healing, peace, acceptance, to be set free is all a work of God done on our behalf through the person of Jesus Christ. He did for us what we simply could not do for ourselves. He set us free from the bondage of our own sin and selfishness. He has set us free from the shackles of shame and self. Jesus Christ did all of that for us when he died on the cross to take care of our sins. Think about this. Jesus Christ doesn't just die on the cross to grant everyone who will come to him by faith a full and free pardon from all sin. That's awesome, amen? That's awesome. I mean, it doesn't get really much better than that, but it does. Because not only did he give us a free and full pardon from all sin, but he also gives to us his righteousness on our account. The imputed righteousness and perfection of Jesus Christ is given to us. Amen? So he forgives our sin, he gives us his righteousness, and over and above all of that, God takes the rebellion of us. God takes those who were in opposition to him, those who were guilty, and he makes us his sons and daughters. Amen? You know, this is what grace does. Grace doesn't just forgive the guilty. It takes the guilty and makes them the eternal children of God. This is something that we kind of need to get a grasp on this morning as we get ready to transition into another section of the book of Galatians. We really need to get a grasp on this thing called the grace of God before we can move into the practical outworkings of God's grace in our lives. So this morning, again, we're going to be looking in Galatians chapter 5 together, verses 1 through 14. But in order to really understand that, we need to understand that God's grace fundamentally changes everything. That God's grace, his favor, his unearned goodness to us changes everything. It changes our standing before God. It changes our identity. It changes our destiny. God even changes our very hearts and our lives, our attitudes and our affections. Grace changes everything. Say that with me. Grace changes everything. I can't hear you. Grace changes everything. It does. Grace fundamentally changes everything. It is that knowledge, it is that personal experience we need to have as we now enter into Galatians chapter 5. So as we began undoing the book of Galatians, following the, the progression and thinking of the Apostle Paul, we indeed began with the personal appeal section. This is chapters 1 and 2, where Paul was adamant that my gospel, the word gospel means good news, that my gospel is the one and only gospel of God's grace. He then went on in the next uh, couple of chapters, chapters 3 and 4, to consider what we were looking at together over, right up until last week, that this grace is experienced by faith alone in Christ alone, and it does not come by any kind of obedience to the law. Today, 
We are moving into the last section, chapters 5 and 6, and this is what I would call the practical appeal. Paul has been going somewhere. Paul has been driving towards this point in his, his discussion with the folks there in Galatia. And the point is this. My grace, my gospel is the gospel of grace. It is experienced by faith alone in Christ, not by works of law, and it sets us free to serve others. That is the goal of God's grace in the life of everyone who knows him, is that ultimately we would experience that grace, and then we would extend that grace to others that we would experience his forgiveness, then we would extend that forgiveness to others, that we would receive his mercy, and that we would extend his mercy to others, that our lives would become a conduit of his goodness in the lives of others. If that's going to happen, if that's going to happen, we need to do a couple of things, and that's where Paul is at today. Today we're going to talk about being free to love God and serve one another. But if we're really going to be free, then we need to do two things. First thing is we need to reject religion and embrace relationship. We need to reject religion and embrace a relationship with God. Galatians chapter 5 in verse 1. Let's kind of undo or understand what Paul has written here, and then we have some points of application I want to do at the end. So, reject religion and embrace God. Uh, chapter, one, chapter 5 and verse 1. If you were here last week, you will remember that I ended the doctrinal portion with this verse. Now, we're picking up this verse to go into the practical part. So, this verse, chapter 5 and verse 1, is what would be called a hinge verse. It is connecting the doctrinal appeal now to the practical outcome. And so he says, for freedom, Christ has set us what? Yes. Now I want you to stand firm in this freedom. I want you to stand in the grace of God. I want you to be, live in this freedom that Christ has secured for you. Why? Because the temptation is always there to submit to what he calls the yoke of slavery. Now, in context, Paul is referring to the Mosaic Law. He's talking about those 613 commands God gave to Moses that the children of Israel said, we will do these. And he's saying, listen, it is, it is a yoke. It is a yoke of slavery. Now, I don't think most of us here today really are concerned about keeping the Mosaic Law. How many of you are, are overwrought about the fact that you can't seem to keep the Mosaic Law? Yet not too many of us today. It's not a big deal in our day. But the equivalency, really, of a yoke of slavery is really what I would call religion today. Religion is man's attempt to ultimately um, approach God. Here's a definition. Uh, religion is a personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices that people use to approach God. Now, we don't keep, quote-unquote, the law as was incumbent upon the children of Israel, but today we have religion. And we have all of these 
rituals and all of these rules and all of these forms of rites that people will do one way or the other to try and make themselves acceptable to God. And so what he is saying is, I want you to stand firm in the freedom that Christ has given you by his grace alone, and I don't want you to be caught up in rules and rituals and all kinds of rites. I want you to understand that if you do those other things in an attempt to please God, you have misunderstood the grace of God. In fact, you have negated grace in your life. Paul's going to get very straightforward here as he's addressing the Judaizers of his day. He says in verse 2, Look, look here now, listen up. Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, which is a sign of the covenant of keeping the Mosaic law, Jesus Christ will be of what? No advantage at all to you. Whoa, 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 whoa. What, what are you saying, Paul? Um, you see, Jesus plus something never works. Jesus plus anything never works because you ultimately negate what Christ can do for you when you add anything to his finished work of the cross. And so the true formula is not Jesus plus something else, you know, being good, being moral, doing these nice things, uh, church attendance, giving to worthy causes, you name it. It's not Jesus plus any of that. Jesus plus equals, that's it. That's the true formula where Jesus Christ impacts your life and makes the difference. It is faith alone in Christ alone by the grace of God alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You try to mix anything with what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. What he is saying here is it doesn't, what Jesus did has no value to you. It absolutely doesn't help you. There is no advantage to what Christ has done if you mix anything with what he has already accomplished. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. Now, this was the big deal in this passage and in that day in that context. Uh, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And as Paul has already talked about uh, previously, the law was given to reveal sin. So what he is saying is this, that um, if you accept this sign of circumcision, then what you're doing is you're saying, I'm, I'm thoroughly condemning myself. This is what he's saying. And if we add anything to the work of Christ, any rule, any ritual, any kind of right that we might do, then we have thoroughly condemned ourselves. So the correlation is there. He goes, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. These are such strong, strong words. But what he is basically saying is this. That being good, being moral, having church attendance, doing good, giving to worthy causes, whatever it may be, if you choose any of these things and Jesus, once you rely on anything other than Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, you have, cut, you have been cut off from Christ and you have fallen away from the only way that you can ever be right with God which is by grace alone. So Paul is being very straight up here, very straight. There is only one way to be right with God, and that is by the grace of God alone. I want you to stand in Christ. I want you to stand 
in grace because that's the only provision for your soul that God has given. Everything else won't work. Everything else won't work. Now in verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul uh, picks up the thought again for those who do know the Lord, those who are standing in grace. You know, there's an interesting little thing going on here. Verse 1, he uses the word us. So Paul is grouping himself in with those people who have received and experienced the grace of God. Uh, In 2, 3, 4, what he does is this. He goes, you, you, uh, you. So he's, he's positioning himself and those who stand in grace against those who want to embrace law or something more than Christ. And now he drops back in verse 5 with the word we. So he's now referring to those who have experienced the true grace of God. I want you to notice what he says. This is really actually beautiful, and I want you to enjoy what he says here. For, this is a little Greek word, gar, which expresses a reason. And now Paul is going to give us the reason why true believers will not be cut off from Christ, nor will they defect from God's grace. For, through the Holy Spirit, capital S, reference to the Holy Spirit, the work of God in our lives, for through the Holy Spirit, by faith, simple trust. For through the Holy Spirit, by simple trust and faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, if you're not careful here, you could think that Paul is is wondering if he will ultimately attain righteousness. That's not what he's saying. Righteousness is a gift given to us by faith alone in Christ alone. And biblical hope is never an uncertainty. It is always a settled assurance. So let me tell you exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that true believers, and if you're out there and you know Christ by the grace of God alone, he's speaking to you. He's saying that true believers, we can't wait for the reality of what righteousness is going to bring. What he is saying is, I can't wait for my faith to turn to sight. I can't wait for my relationship with God to be fully realized. Is that your heart? Is that how you feel? Do you really feel like this world is not my home? I'm just a passing through? Do you really sense that there's something wrong and something disconnected? You really can't ever be satisfied or happy here. Do you really feel that way? It's because you don't belong here. You ultimately belong in the presence of God with a renewed body and a renewed heart and a renewed mind, enjoying Him forever. I love verse 6. Again, here's the little word for. Again, expressing a reason for. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Don't miss what he's saying. When it comes to a relationship with God, it's not about what you do. It's not about what you don't do. It's not about circumcision. It's not about uncircumcision. What he is saying is this. It's about faith, a faith that has its outworking through love. What he's talking about is this. When you encounter 
God through the grace of God found in Christ alone. When you encounter God, what you've discovered is all those years of religious duty, all those do's and don'ts, all that attempt at living a moral and good life, all that stuff which left you on the outside looking in, you've now stepped into the grace of God and you've now been made a child of the living God. You now have a love relationship with Christ. This is good stuff. This is beautiful stuff. I love to ask questions. So every once in a while, I come alongside and just say, hey, um, do you know God? Um, do you know what it means to be saved? Have you been born again? Um, um, uh, are you going to heaven when you die? You see, I love to ask questions like that because I can tell by the person's response whether or not they get it or not. It's that simple. You see, faith in Christ issues forth in love. It results in a relationship a loving, living relationship with the person of God, which is not like, whatever. It's like, I love you, Jesus. You're amazing. Thank you so much for what you've done. So when I ask those questions, you can usually tell whether or not, you know, I'm trying to live a good life. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to be a moral person. I'm trying to make some good choices, you know. Yeah, well, you just told me where you stand. You stand in religion. Those who know him, I can't wait to see him. I can't wait till my faith becomes sight and I get to behold him who gave himself for me and I will lay my eyes on Jesus Christ. My faith will be realized and I will be able to run and throw myself at his feet and just hold on. Oh, 10,000 years or so. This is what it means to live in the grace of God. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision. It's not what you do. It's not what you don't do. It is a love relationship with the living God by the grace of God alone. This is what Paul is hitting on in this section. He is trying to say that, listen, you need to reject religion and you need to embrace a relationship with the living God by simple faith. And I love how beautiful, how beautiful the relationship looks when you truly know God. I found this little clip. I think it captures it. You see, sometimes, even as a child of God, you wind up in the muck and the mire of this world. But God is no longer the judge who condemns us. He's the dad who cleans us.
That's awesome. What do you mean, oh? Yeah. I love how clueless they look. Daddy God, Daddy God. You know, religion is very, very good at helping us to see God as holy, holy, holy. The high and mighty one. The one who is transcendent and totally other. The creator of all and the judge of all the earth who will ultimately judge those who have offended him by their sin with eternal consequences. And you know, that is true of God. But the Bible also teaches that the High and Holy One became part of His creation in the person of Jesus Christ and thus shows the love of God toward us. And He who is High and Holy is actually near and intimate. And He longs to have relationship with us in such a depth of beauty. In to the point that we can actually cry out, as Paul said that the Holy Spirit says in our hearts, Abba, Father, Daddy, God. I have a great friend. Uh, his name is Patrick Elmazar. Uh, Patrick and I have done a small group for about five years together prior to me coming here. Uh, we've gotten together a couple of times since I've been here. Uh, Pat is a Filipino. He came from the Philippines. He grew up there when he was like eight or ten. His father moved to the States. And so he grew up in Oakland, California. And it just so happens that Patrick is an Oakland Raiders fan. And I keep telling him you can't be saved and be an Oakland Raiders fan, but he doesn't believe me. So, so but Pat and I have spent a lot of quality time together. He said, uh, you know, Bill, he said, I grew up in a religious system that showed me there was a God. And I saw this God and I lived in fear of him. Pat went on to the Air Force Academy and there at the academy, somebody invited him out to a Bible study. The Navigators did. And in that Bible study, Patrick saw for the first time 
this high and lofty one has made access into his presence through the person of Jesus Christ, his son. And Patrick got wonderfully born again as he understood this wonderful truth of the grace, the grace of God. So God saves us for a purpose, and that purpose is ultimately that we would love God, that we would love him intimately, personally, completely, fully. And out of this depth of love and gratitude and thanksgiving, we would give our lives to him. Thank you, God. Here's my life. What more can I do? What less can I do? And so this is where Paul is pushing us now that we've moved beyond the doctrinal section into the practical section. It's about a relationship, a relationship with a living God by grace alone in Jesus Christ. So he goes there in this first section, and then in the second section, as he moves from here, uh, continuing to talk about loving God, now he's going to leverage the idea that we were actually saved by the grace of God to serve one another. And so here, picking up in verses 7 through 14, Paul now says, not only do you need to reject uh, uh, religion and embrace a relationship, but you need to now reject legalism, and you need to embrace love. He said this in verse 7, You were running well, Galatians. You were doing so well. I came through, shared the love of God with you, found in Christ. You embraced Jesus. You were doing good. He says, Who hindered you? Who hindered you from obeying the truth of the gospel of grace? The word hinder here is not a very good translation of the actual word. Um, uh, the idea is literally to cut off, to cut in front of somebody, to cut somebody off. So he's using this terminology that you were doing really well. You were running really well in your lane, and somebody cut in front of you and hindered you from progress. But there's another way that word could be understood. You see, the overt idea here is somebody's trying to get them to accept circumcision. And so the idea to cut off is actually a, a sarcasm that somebody is trying to get you to be circumcised. So it's an interesting wordplay the Apostle Paul is using here. You are running well. Who cut you off and kept you from obeying the truth of the gospel? This persuasion, these people are not from him who calls you. They are not of the truth. He goes on to basically say this. He says, they are. Um, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven will leaven the whole lump. If you allow them and their teaching to, um, to take root in your lives, even the smallest foothold in your assemblies, you will, it will destroy the gospel of grace, just as a little bit of yeast will permeate an entire lump of dough. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. In other words, I really believe that you get grace and that you're going to believe what I'm telling you. But the one who is troubling you will have to bear his own penalty, whoever he may be. Verse 11, if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? It wasn't me that said Jesus plus circumcision. That, what, that didn't come from me. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed, but he's still under the offense of the cross. Verse 12, I wish that those who unsettled you would, and what's the word? I, I'm sorry, what's the word? <laughs> Can you say that in church? Probably not. I'm sorry, I made you say it. Yeah, I, I, you know, listen, if they're really going to be this adamant about circumcision, well, I wish they would just do the job to themselves. Okay, Paul, thank you. Uh, I don't know that we all needed that much. TMI, TMI, a little too much information, but that's okay. 
And so basically what Paul is saying is this. Do not give in to their demands. Do not listen to their legalistic ways. They want to cut you off. I tell you, cut them off from your assemblies. Cut off legalism. Because there is a much, much better way to live. He goes on to say this in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only I do not want you to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now that can have one of two meanings. In context, he's talking about the issue of circumcision. So you can make a good showing in the flesh, if you will, by being circumcised. So that on the one hand could mean that. On the other side, it could simply mean this. You've been given freedom, now you're just going to use it for your own devices. You're going to simply take your freedom that Jesus has given you and, and keep it for yourself. Either way could work. But the goal of the grace of God in our lives is that through, what's the word? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Through, through, thank you. It's the emboldened word italicized right there. It's kind of easy to see, yes. Through love, you are to serve one another. Think about this. Before we knew Christ, we were caught in the bondage of sin and selfishness. We have been held captive and enslaved to shame and and self. Along comes Jesus, and he sets us free through his death on the cross. So we have gone from a position of being enslaved to a position of freedom, and Paul now says, I want you to use your position of freedom to become enslaved again. This time I want you to serve, which is a verbal of the noun, which is to be a slave. I want you to be a slave in love to one another. That's powerful. That's powerful. You are a slave to sin. Jesus sets you free, so now you can be a slave to righteousness. So now you can be a slave to those people around you who need Christ in their lives. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so that is Paul's argument to this point. I want you to reject religion and embrace a relationship with God. Love God. And then I want you to actively love others. Love God, love others. That's Paul's message for us today. So let me jump down here quickly. Oh, that was quickly too. almost got whiplash there. Um, We're going to jump down here, and I want you to notice uh, a couple of outcomes from what we've been looking at this morning. And each of them deals with love. Love. You see, the first time Paul mentions love is actually in chapter 5 and verse 6. He's gone through all the book of Galatians, but the first mention of love is in chapter 5 and verse 6. Then he goes on and gives us two more mentions here uh, in verses uh, 13 and 14. And there's only one other time that love is used in the book of Galatians, and we will actually look at that next week. We discover that the fruit of the Spirit is... Yeah, we can go on and on and on. Actually, the fruit, singular, is singular love. The outworking of love is joy and peace and patience and long-suffering and on and on and goodness, kindness. So, um, so Paul is putting the emphasis in this section, even with the tough words all around it, around love. 
Uh, I like what one man has to say about the words of the Apostle Paul. His name is Leon Morris. Uh, Mr. Morris is now with the Lord, but he is a, a wonderful believer from Australia, uh, where he was a seminary professor and a pastor. He has a lovely commentary in the book of Galatians. This is what he says. If there is genuine faith, there will be love. Christian love. That is to say, the believer loves. Not because she or he has found people worthy of being loved, but because he or she has become a loving person in Christ. As Christians, we love, uh, we love because of what we have become when we believe not because of the attractiveness of the people we meet. Saving faith inevitably issues in love. It is important to be clear about this, he goes on to say. He says, sometimes Christians have been so concerned with a zeal for a rigid correctness in doctrine, which they have identified with the faith, that they have overlooked the warmth of love that is inevitably the outcome of true faith, as Paul explains it. I think sometimes it's easy for us to kind of think, love. Yeah, that's cool, love. And, and love has kind of lost a lot of meaning, but love, by definition, means to do what is best for another, even at cost to ourselves. And within the Christian context, love means that my goal in somebody else's life is to ultimately reveal the living God to them. And in so doing, I'm willing to sacrifice my own self towards that end. And so love, it is not ancillary to our faith. It's not around the edges. It's not nice if you want to add it, but you don't have to. But actually, love is the heart of Christian faith. True faith has the heart of God. Here we go. Let me just give you a few instances, and we'll be done. In context, love is the primary ethic of Jesus's kingdom. Love is the primary ethic of Jesus's kingdom. One day, a lawyer came to Jesus and he asked him this question. He said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, it's simple. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is exactly what Paul just said in this section. Love God, love your neighbor. This is the words of Jesus. Love God, love your neighbor. Except Jesus actually kind of built it out just a little bit further when Jesus said, not only are you to love God and love people, but you are even to love your enemies. Crickets. Do you hear that? Crickets. Love your enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus said this, uh, you are to uh, love your enemies and you are to pray for your enemies. Not pray on them, but pray for them. Uh, Luke chapter 6, where he expands upon this a little bit more, he says not only that, but we're supposed to do good to our enemies, and that ultimately we are to lend to our enemies, not expecting anything in return. 
And so this is the ethic of Jesus. This is the ethic of his kingdom. You are to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You are to love your neighbor as yourself, and you're to love your enemies to the point of self-sacrifice. This is Jesus's ethic. This is what his kingdom is about. You know, we could actually take uh, the statement that we've been using. Love God and love people. Love God and love people. But you can actually take this biblically and make it say, love God by loving people. How do you feel about that? You see, we're really good with this sense of personal piety. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. It's my neighbor I can't stand. But, but, you know, John said this in 1 John, how can you say you love God and yet hate your brother because you've never seen God, but you've seen your brother? <sighs> Doesn't add up. Another place, uh, Jesus said, even in the Lord's Prayer, that, you know, as you pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. A couple lines below that in, in Matthew chapter 6, it basically says this, if you do not forgive your brother, your, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. These are powerful statements. A man was going on his way to the altar to give a gift, a sacrifice. And along the way, he remembered somebody had something against him. Jesus said this, put your gift by the altar, go back, make things right with the person that is wrong with you, and then come back now, offer your gift. There's a strong reciprocity in Scripture between loving our neighbor, our enemies even, and loving God. There's a strong connection there because in a very vital way, the people around us are also bearers of the image of God and they are the objects of God's love. And so if I'm at odds with this person and I come to the father and go, oh, father, I love you, I love you, I love you. How many of you have kids? Your kids ever get into a good old fight, good old knockdown, good old take it down, you know, and the one comes up, I love you, daddy. I love you too, baby, but you've got to go back and pick your brother up off the ground. You've got to go back there and kiss your sister. You've got to make things right. Then I'm willing to really talk to you. This is a very real truth in Scripture. We will ultimately love God and evidence it by how we love other people. They are inseparably linked together in Scripture. So this concept of love being the ethic of Jesus' kingdom is a very, very important truth. So love is not ancillary to the Christian faith. It is the heart of the Christian faith. It is the primary ethic behind the building of the kingdom that Jesus is seeking to do in this world. So secondly, out of our text, uh, not only is love the primary ethic of Jesus' kingdom, but, and you saw it, love fulfills the word of God. Love fulfills the word of God. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul said this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall, you shall, you shall, your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying that all of the law can ultimately be fulfilled if we will but love other people as we even care about ourselves. Again, Leon Morris has this insight. What Paul is saying is this. If we live in love, other precepts are not needed. 
the whole duty to other people will ultimately be met if we act in love towards them. That's powerful. Romans 13.10, the Apostle Paul said this, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Wow. Really? How can they say that? Well, actually, if you were to jump back real quick into the, into the Mosaic Law, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, we have commandments about God and our relationship to Him, and we have commandments about people and our relationship to them. And so if you really love God, you would have no problem putting God before other gods. You would have no problem not dishonoring God's image. You would have no problem dis, uh, dishonoring God's name. You would have no problem keeping the Sabbath day holy. Why? Because you love God. It's not a bunch of things we have to do. It's something we get to do because we love him. And the same thing is also true when you get into the rest of the Ten Commandments, which deal on this plane with the people around us. It says this, you know, you're to honor your father and the mo your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet your neighbor's stuff. You don't have to worry about any of that if you love your neighbor. So in a very real way, love is a fulfillment of all the details of Scripture. Jesus himself put it this way. Going back to uh, Matthew chapter 22, uh, it continues. Not only, teacher, which of these are the greatest commandments of law, love God, love your neighbor, but he says this, on these two commands depend all of the law and prophets. Everything that the law and the prophets have said ultimately is fulfilled by loving God and loving other people. In fact, think about what that looks like for just a second. If you were to take your view of the scripture, all of the Bible, and just hang all of the Bible from these two basic truths, love God, love people, love God, love people. If you love God and other people, you do not need the commands and prohibitions of the word of God. However, God has given us the word of God as commentary and to give details on how to love God and how to love people. So we're fortunate to have the truth of the scriptures. But think of it this way. Think of it this way. The word of God gives us detail on how to love God, but love is the fulfillment of those details. Loving God and loving others. I'm trying to help you to see the importance of what God is seeking to do in and through the lives of his people. He saves us by his grace for this purpose. The purpose to love him and to love others. The primary ethic of his kingdom, it fulfills God's word. And then lastly, love is the pinnacle of spiritual maturity. Love is the pinnacle of of spiritual maturity. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. I've already referenced it. And you've already said it. The fruit of the Spirit is? Yes. Now, fruit is that which is ultimately um, adorns a mature tree. And so as one grows in the character of God, it grows in the character of Christ, grows rich and strong in the Scriptures, the outcome in one's life is love. That is the primary characteristic that is true of a true follower of Christ that's living in the grace of God in, in understanding the Scriptures, allowing the Spirit of God to indwell them. 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 7. There's this wonderful um, uh, uh, adding of together of all sorts of truths. 
And it says this, I want you to add to your faith virtue, which is a positive force of life. And to virtue, knowledge, I want you to grow in understanding. And to knowledge, I want you to add self-control. And to self-control, I want you to add steadfastness, which is perseverance. And then to steadfastness, I want you to live godly. And to godliness, I want you to have brotherly affection. And with brotherly affection, I want you to love. The pinnacle of spiritual maturity and develop in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ is self-sacrificing love. This is where Paul has been driving. This is what Paul is encouraging. God wants all of us to become like his son. He desires us to learn to live and to love like Jesus and thus help others to do the same. That's God's goal. That's God's desire. And that's why we keep encouraging you to consider coming out tonight as we get together for the 12A Vision Gathering. Tonight, we're going to start to reveal to you some of the things that we, as the people of God here at Grace, are going to do to work out love amongst one another and to love God by reaching out and loving those who need to know Him. I want to encourage you to come back tonight at 5 o'clock. We will unveil all of this. There'll be some really cool stuff going on. There'll be all kinds of stuff up here. It's going to be an awesome night. If you miss it, you miss it. I'm sorry. Uh, but if you make it, you got it. And so I want to encourage you to be with us tonight. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite the band. Come on up. Uh, finish this up, please, with something to connect our hearts to the God who gave it all for us. Father, uh, I thank you uh, for your goodness and grace in our lives. And thank you that your grace has a purpose. And that's that we would deeply, deeply love you. And that we would deeply, deeply love those around us. I ask, Father, that you would help us in this, uh, that you would grow us in this, and that we would be known as Jesus' followers by our love, one for the other. I thank you now in Jesus Christ's name. And the people of God said, amen. Go ahead and stand with us as we sing.